Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's Sarah Streming, the Cog Dog Coach, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I cover behavior concepts, discuss training ideas, interview experts, and explore my cases, all regarding the dogs we live and play with. Let's go. Welcome back, everyone. This is the much-anticipated round two of the false dichotomy discussion. I am back with my friend, my colleague, Lisa Mullinax. If you have not yet listened to part one of the false dichotomy, you're going to want to listen to that first. It was a couple of weeks ago. I've linked it in the notes for you. Definitely go and check that one out first, because this is very much a follow-up to that episode. So Lisa, as we move into the round two of this discussion, I think we should kind of reiterate the points that we made about kind of what effective training looks like without discussing methods or tools. We can discuss what effective training looks like. So do you want to jump into that a little bit? Yeah. And I think this is important to reiterate and, and remind all of us that we agree on much more than we realize. And this is why we're calling it a false dichotomy. Um, so I think the first thing that everyone would agree on is important. An important part of effective training is that we are ruling out illness or pain as a cause or contributor to a problem before we implement a training plan. Definitely. We are asking, is there a physical cause for this behavior? Is there a, is there an internal antecedent in this animal that is contributing to this behavior? That is a big part of being effective. And then I think the next thing that effective trainers are going to do is look at the external antecedents, the environmental contributors to this behavior. Because if I've got simply a dog, a fish out of water situation, if I've got a dog that lives in a really bad situation for it, I need to be considering that in my, in my BMOD, because no matter how good I am, I can't make certain ways of life work well for certain dogs. And so that's kind of the next piece that we should all be considering. Absolutely. I mean, how, how we create a training plan for a dog that lives in a quiet home in the country versus a dog that lives in the suburbs on a golf course going to look a little bit different. Might look a little bit different. You know, environmental contributors are often just, are often things that we can change that we might not think to change if we're only focusing on the dog and its behavior and and changing its behavior. So for instance, you know, maybe the problem we're called in on is that when the parent is in the school pickup line, they've got the dog in the back seat and the dog has started to bark and lunge at children out the window in the school pickup line. I could make that stop. There are things I could do to make that stop or I could simply say, does the dog have to go to pick up to school pickup? Like if we don't first ask, does the dog have to go to school pickup? We're not being as good as we can be. Right. Right. And that sometimes seems 
I think sometimes trainers are like, oh, that's, you know, that's a cop out. We can change everything. We can, you know, yada, yada. And I think it's, it's also like a young and experienced trainer thing to do to be like, oh, I know how to fix this. Right. <laughs> and <sure>. then <laughs> your trainers who've been added a while are like, how come the dog's going to school pickup? <laughs> <laughs> can right. we like- not leave the dog home from school pickup? And Maybe the answer is, well, I need to take him to school pickup so that, because we go to the park after and it's, it's an important part of his, of everybody's quality of life that we go to the park after. And so if school pickup is, is really necessary, then we're going to build a plan for school pickup to go better. But if we're not first saying, can the environment change instead of the dog, then we're not being as effective as we can be. And I think this piggybacks off of everything that we've just said, but Effective trainers are considering long-term quality of life and welfare. They're considering whether or not what the dog is experiencing is going to be okay forever. We're considering whether or not the dog's kind of basic needs are being met. This isn't just about people and their needs. It's about dog and the dog's needs too. Like there are, there's more than one stakeholder in any dog training conversation. Absolutely. And, you know, I think this is important because in these discussions about methods and tools and all of that, I, I think that we get it wrong when we're thinking about people who use other methods, regardless of what that is. Because I think sometimes, even if we think we are applying a non-aversive approach. That non-aversive approach could, let's say, let's take your example of the dog riding in the car. If, If the solution was to say, not take the dog in the car ever, that, that could impact that dog's quality of life, right? If we're not considering it. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Um, or the dog has to go in the car because they are currently experiencing a high level of distress when left alone, you know, that's, and that's a short-term issue, but that can also be a long-term, a long-term issue as well. If the dog's life is having to be restricted to the point that it is no longer able to engage in, in activities that, that are necessary for their welfare. So I, go ahead. Sorry, Lisa. I, (laughs) Just so y'all know, this is just how I am in real life too. I just cut off all my friends all the time, (laughs) just because I'm excited about what we're talking about. (laughs) So you said a word there that I wanted to pick out, which is restrict and restriction. Dogs' lives with us have to be kind of restricted. This is no longer, you know, back in the day when the neighborhood dogs all roamed together and then came home at night. Dogs need to be on leashes, in crates, behind fences, in houses, right? So they are restricted. And restriction can be supportive of welfare. For instance, the dog not getting hit by a car, right? Because it's restricted. But also and often restriction leads to a reduction in welfare. And so whenever restriction is our, of any kind, is our solution, we have to be considering whether or not its effect on welfare is, is too much. So for instance, if you've been listening to my podcast for more than five seconds, you know that I am a huge advocate for 
providing dogs with off-leash exercise and off-leash time in nature. And I second that. Um, it is the hill that I will die on. Like, I really, really believe that they all need it really badly and that we are simply not providing it for them in the way that we should. And that means that I get people that say, hey, I've got a wildlife chasing problem here. Like, I want to give this to my dog, but I'm afraid something's going to happen to him because he chases wildlife. Or, you know, it's also not okay for him to chase wildlife for the welfare of the wild animals that the dog is chasing. So that's both of those things are true. And because I think off-leash time is so vital to welfare, I might climb that Lima ladder. I might use more aversive intervention to get me there if necessary, never as a first line of defense for anything. So people do not put words in my mouth. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But I might because of the fact that that is about welfare for me. Does that make sense? So it's kind of like, you know, if a person is providing their dog with, you know, like I had uh, Liza Rader on the podcast and they talked about um, R plus gun dog training. And we, we talked about the fact that, you know, we weren't here to like take anybody's e-collar away from them. Who's like training their gun dog. Like that's not, that's not my mission. That's not anybody's mission. Or it's probably somebody's mission. It's not mine. It's not Liza's (laughs) point being, I think that the dog that gets to fetch ducks when it's bred to fetch ducks has better welfare than probably the dog that doesn't get to fetch ducks who is bred to fetch ducks. And then if an aversive tool is how that person has found access to that, then I, you know, who am I to argue with it then? Not saying it's the only way to get it done. Of course it's not. And we're going to get into that deeply today. Right. Right. But considering welfare above your methodology or your tools, I think is really, really important. You have to consider welfare. Um, I think first, and it goes with ruling out illness and pain. It's considering welfare first and foremost and above all. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that part of that kind of does bring us to the next point of what does effective training look like, you know, regardless of the tools or methodology we're, we're talking about, and we'll be getting into more today. Number one, well, maybe not number one illness and pain, environmental contributors, (laughs) quality of life and welfare, like next in the top of effective training is that training prioritizes reinforcement. That when we are talking about, let's let's talk about off-leash training and, you know, having known you for as long as I have and, you know, being fortunate to now live close enough that we have shared many a decompression walk together. Um, including starting uh, starting from the time you first got Raya and seeing how you trained that, how you managed that, I think is a beautiful example of how you can have incredibly effective and reliable off-leash training by prioritizing reinforcement with, with reinforcement, mm. with the smart use of reinforcement. And while there are others who feel that the only way to get that is possibly with certain tools, you know, I think we would all agree that effective training really looks at reinforcement as that foundation, regardless of what we're teaching. Yeah. And I think, you know, 
not to get too deep into quadrant speak. We've got positive reinforcement. We also have negative reinforcement. You're intentionally leaving those qualifiers out because yeah. we have to be considering all the things that drive behavior and negative reinforcement, essentially relief does drive yeah. behavior um, just as much as positive reinforcement or the acquisition of stuff we like drives behavior. And I pay very, very close attention to both all the time. And I, and that's kind of what you're talking about when you're talking about watching me raise little Ray Ray, um, (laughs) the little, the little beast Viking. And so, yes, I would say that effective training understands the ways, the, all the nuanced ways in which reinforcement works. And I do think a deep understanding of positive reinforcement and its nuanced ac- applications can and does get us the outcomes that we want in almost every single situation we can talk about. And when I see a trainer maybe not getting the outcomes that they're interested in, I can almost always dial it back to either we didn't consider welfare the way that we needed to, or we have a lack, we are lacking somewhere in our application of positive reinforcement. And I'm intentionally staying positive. And I think the word nuance that you bring in there is so important. And I think that's one of those areas that is not understood in the training world enough um, with so much focus being placed on the quadrants themselves and not all the nuances within each quadrant. You know, I remember I'd been a positive reinforcement trainer for a good 10 years um, before I went to a weekend, uh, a weekend seminar uh, with Kathy Sadeo actually, and talking about positive Mm -hmm. reinforcement and that one seminar focusing only on one quadrant just blew my mind. And it was talking about all of these nuances. And I do think that whether it's the uh, person who says that they are a force-free trainer applying reinforcement or a person who does not, you know, who, who uses aversive tools, I think sometimes there is a lack of understanding in all of those nuances and the application, including criteria and delivery and placement and timing and schedules and all of those pieces that we need to have a solid understanding of to be effective. Yes, I have I have good friends of mine who I respect as trainers who utilize um, an electronic caller, for instance, in certain situations. And one of the, one of the things that they're always saying is, you know, they're always talking about the amount of education that went into their use of that one tool. And that if you are good at uh, the application of that tool, which full disclosure, it's at, that's actually like the one tool I don't have a background in using you're going to go to these weekend workshops. You're going to take these online courses. You're going to work with these experts to really hone your application of that tool. And I want people doing the same thing, 
but with the application of positive reinforcement, like you did when you went to Kathy Sadeo's seminar all about it. Yeah. I want us talking about all of the ways in which we can apply reinforcers. I teach a a weekend workshop on this. People come who've been training dogs for decades and it blows, it blows them out of the water because of the nuance, because of the intricacies. All right. And from there, I think we need to get clear on a couple of words. So I see a lot of trainers who are kind of, especially in the thick of this quote unquote trainer war that we are here saying is fake. <laughs> There's a, <laughs> is a false dichotomy and is resting on a false narrative. Um, they use the word aversive a lot and they'll say aversive when they mean punish or they, they mean punisher sometimes. And I want to get clear on what those things mean. So aversive an aversive stimulus, we kind of shorten it colloquially as dog trainers to just aversive, but it's aversive stimulus. An aversive stimulus is anything that an animal will work to avoid or escape. And then a punisher is defined by its effect on behavior. So if, so an aversive may not have any effect on behavior um, that is lasting, that is long-term. It may in that moment, but it still doesn't matter if it's not a lasting, it's not a repeatable effect. So a punisher is something that suppresses or decreases the response. And an aversive is something that the animal will work to avoid or escape. And it's important for us to say, you know, to not throw around the word aversive if we haven't actually observed that the dog will work to avoid or escape it. If I hold up the prong collar and the dog comes and throws its neck in it and says, yay, let's go for a walk, then it in and of itself just being put on is no law is not acting as an aversive yet. If the dog works to avoid putting pressure um, into the prong collar, now we're talking about where the aversive comes in. It's the leash pressure um, on that prong collar. And I do think that that's all, you know, very, um, it's, it's really nuanced and it's fine. But when you say this is an aversive tool, you don't get to say that until you have actually observed the behavior around the tool and the way that the tool works. And you don't get to say this is a punishment or this is a punishing tool again, until you have observed the effect on behavior. And like in the first episode, you mentioned a dog that would hide, that hid under the table at the sound of a clicker. Yeah. When we would not broadly label a clicker as an aversive tool in that instance, the dog was working to avoid and escape it. And therefore by, by definition, it was an aversive tool. Absolutely. And I, I'm sure you've seen it and I know I've seen it many times now that front clip harnesses are much more widely used, the number of people that now say when they pull out their dog's front clip harness for a walk, the dog runs away and hides. <laughs> and so, you know, and primarily when I see this, it's because they're very, very badly adjusted or fitted mm. and they do cause the dog a significant amount of discomfort. Um, and so if we were going to label something an aversive tool, that front clip harness, which is typically considered a non-aversive tool, is aversive to some of those dogs. Certainly it was to my dog who just has a significant amount of body sensitivity. You know, 
putting walking him on a slip lead was less aversive to him than walking him on a harness. So I think that's, you know, your point is, is very good that we need to look at what its effect is on that animal. And there have been plenty of times I've been driving down the road and I see an ancient golden retriever with a loose, (laughs) a, a huge prong collar hanging loosely around its neck. It's, it's so big. It probably just slipped over the dog's head, (laughs) you know, and it's plodding along next to the owner on a very loose leash. Are we saying that's an aversive tool in that moment? No, not for that dog and not in that moment. So I I think, you know, we could, we could dig so much deeper. We could talk for another hour because is the scenario of wearing a prong collar attached to a leash attached to this person is that a conditioned unpleasant scenario that then alters the dog's emotional valence to a point that it is just walking next to the person like a slug or is the dog just ancient and has a thyroid condition like we don't know (laughs) (laughs) right (laughs) right Um, we don't know i think that's something too we don't we don't. So that brings us to then the difference between um, reinforcer and appetitive stimulus. Mm-hmm. We use reinforcer a lot. Um, we use reinforcement a lot. Um, obviously, reward is commonly used. And I, I think just like with aversive, this is something that does need to be clearly defined. So It's defined as, um, so an appetitive stimulus is anything an animal will work to acquire, whereas a reinforcer, um, just as punisher, is something that has an effect on the behavior, an increase in behavior. And I know for me, when I first started using or, or reading the term appetitive stimulus became very confusing for me. Because, you know, it's, it's fine if we're talking about food rewards. Mm. Um, and so that, that makes sense, but that we have so many other types of reinforcers that dogs will, will work to acquire for, so Simon, for example, one of his favorite activities is to dig at a throw rug. And I have been, I have found a way to take that stimulus and apply it as a reinforcer for behavior. Um, I have a a throw rug that I will put under a heavy ottoman and then release him to go and and dig at that. Um, People may struggle to to label that as appetitive because he's not eating it, right? (laughs) Yeah. And it's simply, but he has acquired it. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's because we attach the word appetitive to the word appetite. Yeah. And then we yes. think it's, it's all eating. But again, if your understanding of positive reinforcement is limited to handing the dog food, like we got problems, Missing right? And yes. that's, and that's certainly that comes back to what an effective trainer is and what you're getting at, which is, I think the point of talking about these words is that an appetitive stimulus is something that we might hope to manipulate in order to affect behavior, just like an aversive stimulus is something that we can manipulate to affect behavior. These are things that we can use to our, right. to our desired outcomes. And 
this is where a deep understanding of it and a deep understanding of all of these things comes back to being effective because if my if what I understand best is how to manipulate aversive stimuli, then that's what I'm going to use. That's what I'm going to reach for. Right. But if I understand very well how to manipulate um, appetitive stimuli, then I am going to reach there. And saying that an effective trainer leans heavily on positive reinforcement, which we are saying, is saying that to be an effective trainer, you need a rich understanding of what is appetitive and what is reinforcing and what the difference between those two things are. Because yes. food in a general sense is gonna be an appetitive, an appetitive stimulus in a lot of scenarios for our dogs. And we also may, it, it also may not reinforce anything in a certain scenario. Sometimes I throw food right. just to make some stop and it doesn't reinforce the thing because the thing was not motivated by food in the first place. And if I don't understand, again, the complexities of what dogs right. will work for and what they're working for all the time, then I won't understand that. So if you ever told somebody to throw food at a barking dog, and then, you know, for instance, the dog is barking at the delivery man or something, and you just throw a handful of food at them and they stop and they snuffle the food. The fear of the client is always that I'm going to reward the barking with the food. Right. To date, I've never had a dog <laughs> attach delivery man to food throwing in, in such a way that they do bark in order to acquire food. Right. And, and this as is, I, that's like a whole other podcast. Oh, for um, sure. That I actually have recorded. So that I, that's out <laughs> that I will link in the notes, but essentially what we're saying is it's important for us to use the right words as trainers. It and is. it's also important for us to know what we're doing. I agree. And, and I think that when, when we don't have a clear understanding of this, I think this is how some trainers may attempt to try uh, what they think is reinforcement, positive reinforcement. Mm -hmm. And when it doesn't change behavior, oh, and I shouldn't say trainers, trainers, handlers, pet owners, when Anybody they dealing with a dog to try this and call it positive reinforcement and it doesn't work, they will then say, well, positive reinforcement didn't work on my dog or this breed or this behavior. And when by definition, no. positive reinforcement works, reinforcement yes. works by definition. If it's not working, yes. it's not reinforcement. Exactly. It's defined by exactly. its outcomes. Right. Yeah. Right. And same thing with punishment. If same if exact they are thing, just if it having didn't work, to it was apply a punishment. It over and over. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Um, and I think it's also leads to the confusion of people applying something that they think is an appetitive stimulus, which let's, let's talk. Well, we won't go into it, but praise and petting praise and yes. petting are seen as by, by many are labeled as positive reinforcement. But if that's not something the dog is working to acquire either ever, or in that particular setting, then it is not a reinforcer. And so they are not using positive reinforcement. So yeah, there are nuances and, and here we are, we're just defining two, two words, aversive and appetitive. And 
look at all of the all of the nuances and all of the considerations. So I would and I, I think you would you would as well that uh, I think we would say that whether someone is currently using, let's say, aversive stimulus to um, for certain behaviors or believe that they need that to train X behavior or X breed or whatever. I think it is it is definitely on us to constantly push and see, you know, if to evaluate these pieces and see if mm-hmm. there might be something we're missing, right? So that we are always pushing to find less aversive ways that we can we can do this. Yes, and that comes to you know, we we can get into the weeds of ethics versus efficacy. I do like to, you know, I'll quote Susan Friedman and say effectiveness is not enough. Yes. Simply being effective does not necessarily consider all the variables that we've considered. But if we are considering welfare and we are considering long-term quality of life, then we probably are going to lean heavily on positive reinforcement. And we are going to be pushing to do better all the time. And I think that's part of just being effective too, whether we're using, no matter what kind of methodology we're leaning on, pushing to be better all the time and better meaning less and less intrusive, intrusive, less and less aversive. Yes. Yes. And this, this reminds me of one of the last times I used aversives when working with a client dog. And it, it wasn't something I utilized well. It was, but I didn't think of it that way in the beginning. You know, we used to use a lot of aversives, you know, lots of verbal corrections and the the hard stare and, you know, body pressure as, as an aversive. But I, I think back to one of the last times that I thoughtfully applied an aversive with a client's dog, and I won't go into the details of what it was that I did specifically, but this was a dog that had a history of running out the side gate and into the road. Mm -hmm. And so I concocted a plan that utilized aversives that did not, that were not physically applied to the dog, but they were in the environment and they were, it was intended to punish that behavior. Mm -hmm. And we did it and it was effective. And it was something we only had to do a few times before we started to get the response that we needed. But you and I were talking about this a while back and you brought up a good point that now that is not the plan I would have constructed. Hmm. Now, because you're pushing, because you're pushing to be better. You were effective. You still want to be effective. Yes. Now you want to be effective and lean harder on positive reinforcement. Exactly. Exactly. That looking back at that now, there are so, I understand learning. I understand training. I understand all of that so much better that I could have reached the same results in the same amount of time, but without applying that aversive. And, and that's, I think why we want to keep learning and better understanding um, how, how we can do this better, how we can, we can do this in a way that is, you know, that follows the Lima, 
least invasive, minimally aversive plan, right? Yeah. And let's say that you had been kind of dogmatically opposed to applying that aversive at that time. Mm -hmm. And you also had the, the positive reinforcement chops that you had at that time. Do you think you would have been as successful? No, no. Yeah. So here, that's a really important thing to consider is that you, it wasn't that you needed that aversive application to be successful overall. It's that you would have needed better chops on the positive reinforcement side to avoid it. Exactly. And I do think that's true a lot of the time. I agree. It's, it's true a lot of the time. And honestly, my friends who use my friends who might apply more punishment behavior mod routes, who might utilize more aversive tools than I do in their daily practice. Don't disagree with me when I say this, but they're, you know, we're all always weighing everything in front of us. You needed to fix that behavior for those people. That dog could get hit by a car. It could get lost there. It was a high stakes scenario and you leaned on the chops that you had and you got it done. Yes. And while I would like everybody to push for better all the time and to reach out to colleagues today, if you were considering a route like that, you would call me, you would call Marissa, you would call, you would call in your cabinet and say, what am I missing here? Do you think this is an okay route? And that's another part of being an effective trainer is that you don't just say, well, the way I know how to do this is this. So let's do it. (laughs) Right. And that is something that our profession, I think that, that is missing significantly. I mean, you and I have discussed the fact that we know long, like we are one of the few trades that does not have the process of apprenticing under someone and then reaching a, a journeyman status and then, you know, reaching the qualifications where then we are given the, you know, the master title. And I think way back when, when I started, um, and I don't know if when you started, if it was the same, I mean, master trainer was for a long time a title, but it became something that trainers gave themselves. Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And I'm sure you're picturing in your head, the same picture I am of the type Mm -hmm. of trainer that, you know, Um, the type of person I should say. And, and we're missing that. And because we're missing that, I think too often, whatever route we've gone to become a trainer, whether it was going to a school, whether it was actually working for another trainer and learning from them, or whether it was, you know, piecemeal, like I think it was for both of us, where it was, we learn a little bit here, we go to a conference, we go to a seminar, we, you know, make friends with other trainers. And it was this, this piecemeal route that we are too often relying on sort of a Swiss cheese knowledge. And, and if we aren't talking to others, if we don't have that network of other trainers that we can bounce ideas off of, we are always going to have those holes. And so relying solely on our, our individual knowledge means we're going to miss pieces. Mm-hmm. And so I agree that when we, 
you know, to, to keep up with that visual. When we start layering pieces of Swiss cheese on top of each other, we get a more solid piece of cheese. Yep. And which we um, like, we like cheese and we like a solid yes. piece of cheese. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we like the solid piece of cheese. We like the milky cheese. We like <laughs> any uh, adult cheese. Um, yes. <laughs> no, I, lo- I actually love that visual because it's true. We fill in the gaps for each other when we have better community and the false dichotomy. What does it do? It, it, it hurts the community. It breaks that. Yeah. yeah. So we are going to dive a tiny bit into whether or not there should be different considerations in what we do based on different variables. Because so far you and I have been talking about the field of pet dog training and pet dog behavior modification. Your background is strongly in shelter work. My background is strongly in sport work, but we both work primarily with pet dogs in Uh, training and behavior modification. And there probably are different considerations based on different scenarios. For instance, the lengths to which you would go for a dog that is not like owned and loved by a family who's like seeking being owned and loved by a family because he's in a shelter. His options are different than the dog who is already owned and loved by a family. Right. And sometimes with my sport clients, not all the time, but sometimes with my sport clients, we can, we can pull off really cool stuff because these people are already hobby trainers. They want to be training dogs. We can do all kinds of things. So just even in that, there are different considerations, but let's start with like, what's the difference in what's effective, what effective is going to look like in your own personal dog versus client dogs? Like what are there different considerations there? Oh, absolutely. And I, and I would say, you know, let's, let's even break it out to personal versus client versus shelter dogs. Oh yeah. 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 Because there are, there are some variables there that when we're making decisions for training or behavior interventions, that are going to vary. So we know or hope that with our personal dogs, we know exactly what their foundation has been with us. We know that we, and and hopefully we are (laughs) honest enough with ourselves to be able to identify where we may have made mistakes, what we might be missing, what we haven't, what skills our dog does not have and needs to have in certain situations, right? We, we have that, that knowledge of that dog. We also have that relationship with that dog. And, yep. and, and by relationship, I'm just going to say, you know, there's the reinforcement history, there's learning history in general. Yeah. It means a lot of things. For instance, I, train with, I've got uh, Megan Foster, who is kind of my training partner. Like we train two or three times a week and we're training for sports. We're training for agility. And I'm also training for obedience. And when there's a problem, for instance, with my dog, Felix, who is going on, he'll be eight years old soon, which I know nobody can accept, including myself. If Felix is a problem, 
it is so fast and rewarding and easy for us to fix it because of what he knows. Right. And when I broke my foot, Megan was able to run him and compete with him in agility really successfully, even though she had never run him before the day that I broke my foot because of her understanding of what he knows. Right. So he know he has this huge education behind him in his reinforcer yes. skills and his behaviors that he knows. And she understands them because she trains like I do. And that means that like the sky's the limit here. Like we have, we can get it done, whatever it is, due to the vast understanding of so many different things that he has versus a client dog might show up with a similar problem and things are going to be different because that dog doesn't have the same education. So when you say relationship, I also feel like education is such a huge part of it. Rhea doesn't know as much as Felix because she's a lot younger than him. Right. But eventually she'll probably know more because I'm a different trainer than I was when I was like, she knows more at two and a half than he did at two and a half. Yeah. So looking at personal versus client versus shelter, when it's the personal dog, I know the history. I know the education. I gave him the education. Right. And I can be really realistic about everything that is literally in my arsenal. Right. Versus a client dog whose arsenal we can build versus a shelter dog who's like on a time clock. And we have no idea what that dog's foundation is. And, right. and I also think that with the client dog, you know, what I, I used to ask client, like, please give me, give me a list of cues that your dog knows and is reliable, right? right? right. That what, what cues are reliable and they will give me like this long list. And you learn so much from just that one question. <laughs> uh, you know, on, on paper, I'm like, "Woo, this dog has a great foundation. We have a lot we can work with. Now, what I ask clients is I have kind of a set, a, a list of foundation skills that I know will be helpful in most cases. And I ask them to give that skill a grade with no judgment, oh, that's but cute. I like this. between A and F. A being doesn't matter when, where, what's going on. A is my dog will do this every single time. The first time I ask him F means, yeah, he, I get no response. Any, it doesn't matter what I can have a, a whole ham in <laughs> F my is, hand. F means why did you put that on the list? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if it's an F, it doesn't belong on this list <laughs> right. of things your dog knows. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, just getting you know, when we're talking about, um, you know, training, if, if I just relied on someone telling me that their dog knew a down, knew down and stay, and then the dog wasn't doing it, would, uh, you know, would that lead me or the client to make different choices in our behavior plan? It would absolutely. I think in a lot of situations, it does. I'm not saying for you, right. In a lot of situations, it makes us consider a correction yeah. when we think the dog quote unquote knows what we're asking them for. Right. So an honest evaluation of what the dog actually knows is where you need to start. And like I was saying with my personal dogs, I'm really, really clear on what they know. 
I can't ever be that clear with a client dog and certainly not a shelter dog, but like, it's, it's important for me to try. Right. And And it's important for us to always know. I always say this and I say it a little bit tongue in cheek, but it's true. How do you know they don't know something? How do you know they can't do something? It's, you know, because they're not doing it. Right. It doesn't actually matter. (laughs) (laughs) the, The history doesn't matter as much as this moment. Right. If they can't do a downstay in the dealership while your car's getting an oil change, but they can in the living room, that's your information. Yep. It's not that they should get a correction in the dealership. It's that they need more education in the dealership. Exactly. They need more, more preparation. And, and just a note too, in, in, you know, these choices that we make in training, when it comes to shelter dogs, I'm, I am going to dive into an opinion on this one that I, I don't believe it's ethical to use aversive stimulus on or aversive methods and tools on shelter dogs, because these are animals that have zero control over their environment. And they are in the most stressful environment um, that they've experienced. Most of them are sleep deprived because during the time of the day that they would be napping, like our dogs are right now, Mm -hmm. they have people coming through and cleaning kennels and taking them up for vet um, exams and the public walking through and looking at them and, and interacting with them. And so these dogs are under an extreme amount of stress. And if we apply aversives in those situations, we have not done our due diligence of exactly that welfare piece. Exactly. When the welfare piece cannot be addressed to a level that is even acceptable, let alone, you know, ideal. Right. Then in my humble opinion, you don't have a lot of room for behavior modification at all. Like your entire job is to improve welfare from second one. Yes. And if a client dog is similar, if the client dog, you know, I sometimes work in households where it's a crate and rotate situation and they've got anywhere between five and 10 dogs. Right. Those dogs don't have much control either over their lives. Right. Right. And my first job is to improve welfare for those dogs. Yes. And until I have done so, aversive tools are none what am I doing with behavior mod until I have done so? Absolutely. So it's actually a really important piece that you bring up, which is that if we are going to manipulate aversive stimuli to meet our own ends, do we have any right to do so if we have not first met those welfare needs? I'm going to say no, because we also don't have any right to do to manipulate the appetitive stimuli to our own ends if we have not first met those welfare needs. Agreed. Agreed. Because behavior behavior modification is inherently invasive. Yes. So, man, we could really go down a spiral (laughs) here. So let's not. So no, I'm really glad you brought that up though. It's really important. Should there be different consider? So there are different considerations for personal versus client versus shelter versus not anybody's dog. Like, yes. Yes. Of course there are. So so when, when we are getting into discussions about training method, you know, this is another, another piece where people are overgeneralizing and they are making 
making statements. And so I think we do need to consider, we need to consider which, um, which types of dogs we're talking about. And I think you and I kind of agreed that we're staying out of the law enforcement military mm. realm in these discussions, because I certainly know very, very little about it. I would want somebody in this conversation who has more experience in that area than either of us. I've certainly had nice, good, robust conversations with people who have been in that field, but that does not give me an authority. I don't think to speak on it. And there are also, there are rules, there are governances, there are, there are things that, there are things that affect that area in ways that I think we, you and I are going to kind of not get into specifics on that one. Right. And I think that's, you know, I would want somebody sitting here better able to comment on it for us to go into there. So that's specifically working uh, police military apprehension canines is what we're right. kind of not going to dive super deep into. We are going to talk about sports though. Yes. And sports include the sporty, sporty spice version of the apprehension canine, which is... <laughs> Your, your Schutzen slash IGP, your ring sport dogs, um, your PSA dogs, but those are also not sports that I compete in. So a lot of people would still tell me to step off. I do have enough really close friends in those sports. Like my cabinet of dog trainers is full of people in those sports that I feel like I can talk a little bit about that. So let's Let's just talk a tiny bit about sport training considerations and kind of our personal ethics and like where, what different variables might come in. I've been competing in dog sports for 25 years. My sports are agility and obedience. I've dabbled a little bit in some other things, confirmation, tracking, things like that. It is the personal line for me that exists that I, I do not lean on aversive tools in my sports. It's just a personal line for me. I did used to, I learned how to do obedience with some pretty serious tools on dogs as well as not just tools, but like stuff that you might do corrections that I, that I learned how to do. Um, I just don't lean on that stuff anymore. I'm a smarter trainer now. I don't need that stuff. I have a much deeper understanding of behavior and a deeper understanding of reinforcement. And so I don't need to, I don't, because I don't need to. And I also don't, because these sports are here to enhance my life and their life. And it's really, really important to me that my dogs lives would still be good if we never did dog agility again tomorrow. It's really, really important to me that they're like, again, this circles back to that welfare piece. If time off from dog agility affects my dog's quality of life too much, then my dog's quality of life is not good enough. Right. So I believe that strongly. And I will say that while also saying that I have friends with different kinds of dogs that do bitey sports, whose quality of life would suffer without the bitey sports, even though their their life is decent. Bitey dogs so, must bite. <laughs> bitey dogs kind of need to bite. And that's not always true. Like, that, God, there's so much nuance here. Nothing sure. I'm saying is always or never, right? Right. For me, in sports, I will not climb that ladder towards punishers, towards aversives as quickly as I will in pets. And I don't climb it fast in pets. 
<laughs> no. <laughs> I'm I'm pretty effective without that stuff for the most part. And in sports, it's just kind of that ladder is so high up in the clouds, I'm never gonna get there. That's how right. I feel about it. And I, I think that's an important point. And I know we talked about this last time that we all have our personal ethics. And that in discussing these, you know, in the, in the dog training discussions that we've seen, there are people who present their ethical beliefs as fact. And that tends to lead to a whole lot of problems right. there. Right. And, and that's okay. We all have our personal ethics as long as we're considering animal welfare you know, above all else, I think that, um, we can, we can vary on that and still maintain personal ethics. But when animal welfare starts to suffer in, in any of these realms, including sports, that's, that's when we start to see real problems. Yeah. And in sports, it's, it goes so much deeper than just, are you using a prong collar or not? Like it's (laughs) some of the, some of the people who I think are the least ethical in sports that don't use those tools. Like I have seen people whose sure. training I am extremely uncomfortable with and has nothing to do with the tools in dog agility. It is not common to use an aversive collar. And I, you know, I say that with everything we've already said piled on that the collar itself may not be right. So it's not common in right. agility to correct a start line, say with a prong collar, it happens for sure but it's not common. It's not like you're going to go take an online class on start lines. And they're like, so the first thing you do is you fit the prong collar like this. Like that's not going to happen. Right. Whereas you might take an online class on healing for obedience. And the first thing you do is you fit the prong collar like this. Right. So in agility, the culture is a little bit different, but the culture, but that's almost a problem in and of itself because then people can kind of feel good about the other things they're doing that are maybe just as bad or way, way worse. So there's a lot of people whose training I'm very uncomfortable with in sports who would consider themselves a positive reinforcement-based trainer. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I could talk about that for like three or four hours. So let's not, (laughs) are there different considerations if we're talking about like skill training versus behavior modification? Like, would we climb the ladder in behavior modification faster than in skill training or, or not. You know, and I, I, I do think there are differences. You know, one of the differences I, I think is that um, in some cases, things that I, I have seen and heard um, is that there are trainers or, or even pet owners who do climb that ladder to, to aversives very quickly in the early stages of training. And, and I, or I think even in behavior modification, oh, well, if it's this type of behavior. That's what I see is like, yes. for this, you need this, for this, and you need I, this, for this, you need yeah. this correction. And for this, you need this. And I, it happens in skill training too. It's yes. like, no, for a sit stay, you need a collar pop. Right. Or for leash pulling, you need a collar pop, right? Like or for off-leash recall, you need a remote collar. Sure. Off-leash recall, you need a, a remote collar. Like, you know, things like that. I think that that all comes back to we're not reaching out to our cabinet. We're not trying to 
push ourselves to get better. Right. And, you know, for this, I think we can, we, we didn't really define training versus behavior modification, but, and tell me if you agree that when we talk about this, when we're training, we're teaching new skills. Whereas mm-hmm. behavior modification, we're trying to undo what a dog has learned. Sure. We're literally trying to change a present set of behaviors with behavior modification. Yeah. Skill training is teaching new behaviors and you need yeah. skill training in order to modify present behaviors, in my opinion, effectively. Right. I think that they lean on each other. But you might, honestly, for me, and I want to know your thoughts on this, I'm feeling as we're talking about this, that the difference for me between skill training and BMOD is that that welfare piece is going to be bigger and brighter and more present in that BMOD. For sure. And I think one of the reasons is that a lot of times as trainers, when we're looking at BMOD, we're looking at an affective behavior which is another one we can define effective meaning pause and talk about that. Yes. Yes. That it is driven, I guess, by an emotional reaction, primarily a threat response, which a lot of times people will call fear or anxiety, you know, or it could be frustration, but it is emotionally driven versus non-effective, which is, we usually apply that more to, um, predatory, predation type behaviors, right? Mm -hmm. It is not a reaction to a perceived threat. It is, I see a bunny and- I see a bunny and my ancestors call to me from deep inside. Yeah. (laughs) And I think that if you are, I think it's really important. I think it's most important to consider the antecedents that you can identify and the welfare pieces that you can identify versus trying to sit down and think like, is this affective or not yet in B in behavior modification, we are really, really frequently dealing with dogs who are in a really um, a state of distress. Sometimes that you walk in with your skill training is like, nice try. You got to bring this dog out of distress first, like first, we have to feel comfortable and safe. Right. And if the behaviors you're dealing with are a side effect of not feeling comfortable or safe, then what do you have? You have a welfare issue. Welfare has to be considered first. So if the dog is trembling under the table, actually I'm remembering an episode of television. You will (laughs) all know who I'm talking about. So I don't need to say names. I'm remembering an episode in which the dog was afraid to walk across the linoleum floor. How many dogs have we known who are afraid of slick floors? Because poor dogs live in this stupid world of ours with slick floors. And I'm going to, I'm, I'm liberally saying the dog was afraid because not because I've interviewed the dog, but because I'm familiar with dog body language and he looked afraid to me, you know, putting on the brakes, really wanting to avoid walking across the floor. And then the trainer, and I'm using that word lightly, put slip collar around the dog's neck and basically gave him a choice between breathing or walking on the floor. And the end result was that the dog was walking across slick floors with on a loose leash. And so a lot of people go, but look, it was effective. The dog is functional. Now the dog can walk on slick floors. Right. 
And in my opinion, it wasn't effective because you didn't consider the welfare first. You didn't first help that dog be not afraid. Right. And the dog wasn't walking across the floor happy. Like it was a loose leash. He wasn't choking anymore, but he wasn't like, oh, these are no big deal. I can now trot around and wag my tail. It was still, I'm going to slip at any moment. I know I'm going to slip at any moment. I don't like it. I don't like it, but I don't want to choke. Right. So when we don't consider welfare, we will gloss over the emotions. Right. Behind what's going on here. And that, that get used to it mindset. (laughs) It reminds me of my childhood. (laughs) Yes. It's so prevalent, whether it's with pet owners, right? The, the yeah. reactive dog. Cause it's prevalent with us. Sit. I just said it remind me of my childhood for a reason. Yes. Like, <laughs> we were all told to get over something that we really felt like we couldn't get over. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah. Um, and it is, it is not considering the, the emotional experience of the dog. And yet when we, when we know, when we understand how stress affects behavior and we look at welfare and, and improving welfare, meaning decreasing the, the stress that that animal is experiencing, when we decrease, decrease stress, those problem behaviors aren't necessary for the dog anymore. Mm. And so we are still being effective but when we consider the variable of the dog having an emotional reaction versus just teaching them a skill, you know, I think that leads us to, to a behavior plan that is both effective for that dog and following those Lima principles. And so, you know, I think that when I, when I think about the two, my, because I, I like my um, analogies. It's the difference between me learning how to parallel park in a car versus me attempting to parallel park and then a large spider falls down on my shirt while I'm driving. Oh God, how dare you? Why would you say that? (laughs) Because I know you get it. I'm so upset right now. (laughs) I'm upset by parallel parking. I'm upset by spiders. I am now trigger stacked. Right. So if I'm, if I'm, you know, if I was learning to parallel park and a spider falls on my shirt and I start reacting and the, you know, the parent or grandparent who was teaching me the parallel parking tries to punish my reaction, right? We're not addressing the issue. Get rid of the spider and then I can parallel park. Yeah. Um, The dog that's afraid to walk across like floors, like, can we not just roll out a yoga mat for this? poor creature. Like I, like, like, can we not just say, you know what, baby, I know this is just a rough world that you have to live in and your giant great Dane Bambi legs cannot do this. And so here is a yoga mat. Like, can we not just be kinder overall? Like for instance, I am stressed by parallel parking (laughs) and I have had I've had a person in my car really chastise me for that and mock me for that as I'm trying to park. And then I've also had a person be like, you know, I'm really comfortable with it. Do you want to just switch and then just park my car? Yes. Problem solved. And then I've also had a person literally talk me through it. And by definition, it's aversive to me because I work to avoid it. I will just walk further. 
Um, <laughs> I don't need to <laughs> parallel the minivan. And so I do think, you know, can we consider, can we put having like a kind caretaker who just kind of cares about you in that welfare category? I think, God, maybe we can. And maybe that's, that's what this keeps coming back to. It's not that um, we are just like these softies, which like, I got to tell you all, you haven't hung out with us, but you wouldn't describe <laughs> us that way. <laughs> true. Just, Very true. just so we're clear. Um, <laughs> that's, that's not how that would come across. So kind of finally with our different variables, it just go, I think it should go without saying, but it doesn't go without saying that effective trainers are also considering the individual above all else in so many different ways. Like for you, the rough part about that parallel parking scenario was the spider. Right. For me, like I'm already upset about the parallel parking. So the spider is just now I'm jumping out of the car and running down the street. Like, it's just, I'm, I'm done. I've abandoned the car. You may as well light it on fire. Cause I'm never coming back. <laughs> um, and I think we come back to this all the time. Your dog, Simon walk walks on a plain buckle collar and, yes. and leash, even though it'd be easier for you in a lot of situations to use a harness on him. Oh yes. Because harnesses are horrifying for him. And this is not without work. You tried. Right. You tried a lot of horrifying too. Yes. Horrifying meaning it looks like he is uh, glued to the floor, trying to rub it off frozen. Like he can't move like a cat that's had a sweater put on it. Um, He cannot eat. His ears are pinned. Like he's, he's, He's distressed by it. Yes. And you and tried to tried so many <laughs> break it down and desensitize yeah. and um, counter condition. And I even mentioned to you that I tend to just put harnesses on puppies and just leave it on. Yeah. And let them adjust. You even tried did. that. We talked about that. And like, and like, you were like, this can't, he's in too much distress. And I agreed that he was in too much distress. And I was also speaking of environment. I was also living in a high rise apartment at the time where Mm -hmm. I had to take him out at least three times a day. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't have the luxury of doing any sort of slow introduction of anything. Yeah. His leash had to be attached to something as you went out and about in the world. And that's important to consider. It, you just have to consider the individual. Yeah. I've seen, cause I've seen posts by popular trainers about, you know, how bad collars are just all collars, just it puts pressure right. on the neck. Here's all the problems with it. Yada, yada. For Simon, there's no question in my mind that a harness is not a good idea for him. Right. The, it, that just comes back to considering the individual period. So the individual also means breed and history, like breed, the breed that you're working with. We talked about this a little bit in part one, being effective means understanding the breed that you're working with, understanding the individual and the individual's breed. Um, What's important inherently to border collies is different from what's important inherently to golden retrievers. 
those are gross generalizations that of course there's going to be individual differences within. Right. But that is generally true. Right. And for clarity, we are not saying that different breeds learn differently. I, I right. think that's something that comes up frequently and, and they are not, it's, they do not learn differently, but they have different right. predispositions they and have they different have different motivating operations. Yeah. Yes. They're, you know, the, there's so many examples we could get into, but you know, the goal of the dog with their behavior trying to change matters. Yeah. yeah. And you might not understand the goal there are times that you're not going to understand the goal if you don't understand the ancestral need that, that the dog that the dog has. <laughs> that, is, right. that is where this thing is coming from. A lot of Raya's barking isn't about anything other than she needs to bark about stuff because she's an Icelandic sheepdog. And so for yeah. me, understanding which barking is about, I'm trying to change my environment. I'm trying to affect change in my environment. And which barking is just about, I'm having a feeling and it's coming out as a bark and the feeling could be joy and the feeling could be excitement and the feeling could be it's morning. Frustration. Um, yeah. <laughs> right. Like there's that, but like, if yeah. she's actually trying to affect her environment with the barking, now I can go, okay, how do I affect the environment for you with you doing right. something different? Right. And would I know that just by looking at her as an individual? I should. Right. But it's easier for me to know it, having that kind of boost in information behind it. So in looking at all these different considerations, I think, you know, bringing it back to this false dichotomy discussion is when there are these arguments going back and forth about methods and tools and and this type of training and that type of training, they are so overgeneralized that someone may be arguing their standpoint based on their personal dog that they've been doing basic training with that, you know, they've had from a puppy and has not experienced anything. Whereas another person may be coming at it from the client dogs they're working with that are all BMOD um, and, and have very special needs or someone who's coming at it from their experience sport training, but they're not talking about variables. And so these arguments aren't, they're not going anywhere and people aren't reaching any, I think, clearer understanding of the other person's viewpoint because they're just these blanket, Mm. all dogs, this, all dogs, that you can't, you can't teach this, this way that doesn't work on this. This is going to cause problems if you use it. And, and so the reason we're talking about these, these, all of these different variables is because we do want to discuss, you know, when we are having conversations, if we want this to be a dialogue, Hmm. we need to be, I think, asking about these questions. If somebody says, you can't do X, or if you do Y, it's going to be a problem. And instead of it's, yes, it is. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. And here's 18 links proving my point. If we asked, you know, what, what informs your, your view on this? What is your experience that 
tells you this, that we might get a better understanding and we might be able to address that person's concerns. Yes. And I do think that respecting each other and respecting that the individual dog a person might be working with right. definitely has things that you don't know anything about going on right. from right. looking at it from the outside is really important. So I think that, you know, it all kind of boils back to like this question of then does methodology determine the quality of a trainer? Because I think I'm speaking for everybody when I say that I've experienced bad training regardless of method um, across the board. And the differences in the side effects of the bad training, you know, those might, they might be different, right? But the truth is that quality isn't, I don't think is defined by methodology. Do you? No, I agree. I think that you know, all of what we're talking about here, quality is looking at all of these pieces and all of these considerations. And I, you know, I have a video of myself that I use in um, webinars and seminars sometimes that is a demonstration of me applying the right, quote unquote, right method so poorly that... (laughs) I love that it's yourself. You're like, and now, and now yes. I'm going to throw someone over the coals and it is me. <laughs> and it is me. Because Here it wouldn't be cool if it and, was somebody else. Right. I am going to do the counter conditioning, which is the quote unquote right method. And I do it so badly. The dog ends up growling at me. Oh, good. Okay. And, and barking and backing off, backing away from me. So I would say in that moment, the method did not make me a good or effective trainer. It was the application. It was an application problem, problem, not a method problem. Exactly. An application. Sometimes it is a method problem. Sometimes you are doing the wrong thing for the situation. So poor applications, a problem regardless, but so is poor choices of methodology. Um, And I think that this all comes back to what determines your quality, I think, is these things, this bullet list we've given again and again and again. Are you considering welfare? Are you leaning heavily on positive reinforcement? Are you doing both of those things? Right. Are you reaching into your cabinet when you want to climb that ladder towards more aversive applications. I would like you to be doing that. Yes. And then you've got, you know, you've got somebody using fill in the blank aversive tool, maybe an e-collar to affect one specific behavior in a scenario, maybe wildlife chasing Mm -hmm. versus some horrible video on the internet of a dog that is like, it's on a station, it's on a place a cot, a thing, and it's wearing an e-collar and it's, you can tell by its face and the rest of its body that it would like to move very much, but sure. um, it's not going to move because of the thing around its neck. Again, this is about application. This isn't necessarily about methodology. Right. And 
there are way, way, way too many examples online of people showing examples of how they have cured a behavior, usually aggressive mm. behavior, by suppressing all behavior. Oh, yep. And there's another one that I use as an example where the the dog had an extensive bite history. And so this this trainer goes in and he fixes it. And the dog is later in a car in the corner of the, the back of the car, leaning away from the person, absolutely frozen and stiff. And the trainer demonstrates how they have fixed the behavior by petting the dog. Now he was so confident in his training that he's petting the dog with a bite sleeve on. (laughs) (laughs) Just being sure. Right. But in, you know, but that is an example. And then that is something we see too much and why I think the, the positive training community is so, um, you know, has such strong opinions about these tools is because this is what we are exposed to. And, you know, that does not consider the dog's welfare. That does not consider the environment. That does not maximize reinforcement. It is literally using that tool to suppress all behavior uh, to the detriment of that dog's long-term welfare. Yes. And again, welfare, number one, if you're not considering welfare, you're not doing a good job. I can say that confidently. Flip side, the number of very poorly applied positive reinforcement based based techniques in those same behaviors, those aggressive behaviors all the time creates, creates opinions on the side of the folks who might lean more towards the use of tools. What we're trying to say is that really good results here, really good results hold welfare very high really good results do not suppress other natural behaviors that are unrelated to the problem. The dog still needs to look like it's a dog. If we go back to that great Dane walking on the floor, who's now doing very little, his tail is just kind of limp. He looks like Eeyore. Okay. His his head is down. His ears are down. His face is flat. He's walking. You have suppressed other natural behaviors unrelated to the problem of not walking on the floor. Right that's, that's a problem. Right. If I try to, let's say I tried to throw food on the floor, I'm just using food, no collar, no whatever. And the dog is like reaching as far as he can to grab the food. And then he's backing up. Like I'm not doing any better of a job. Right. Because I'm not getting it done. The dog's not walking on the floor. Right. I have used a technique where I teach the dog to move from station to station and I make the amount of linoleum between the two stations slowly bigger. Just brilliant. And I, and I, thank you. And I use, (laughs) and I use the dog's behavior to tell me when I get to make it bigger. Right. So when the dog is like, ah, lava, and like drops a foot down and then it's not time to make it bigger. Dog starts to look confident. The dog starts to walk on the floor. I can make it a little bit bigger. I also offer the dog other options. When I first came up with this technique, I didn't do this, but guess what? I, oh my God, amazing. I learned because I have a huge cabinet of people. 
I actually learned this from somebody talking about an experiment with pigeons. So this had nothing to do with dogs. But now I like to put the two stations there and I've got the linoleum and like over there, I do have a strip of yoga mat. So like, if you would like to go out of your way to walk on the yoga mat instead, you're going to, that's available for you. And I, you could give me that information. That's awesome. And that's effectiveness. Why? It's not just because it's nicer. It is nicer than the other two things I just said. It's nicer than throwing food on the floor. It's nicer than pulling the dog across the floor on a slip collar. Right. But it's not, just, it's not about that. It's not because it's nicer. It's because I'm giving the dog a lot of agency over its own situation. I am, and I'm holding welfare as my highest, highest value. And yes. then in the meantime, until the dog learns, we are putting yoga mats everywhere. Did you know that you can buy a roll of yoga mat on Amazon and just cut it to the choices to, to whatever you would like <laughs> in your house? Well, I know because of the number of dogs that have this problem. Right. And so in the meantime, I'm giving the dog the, the option of, you don't ever have to walk on this floor as we work on this problem. And, you know, all of this, not to just be like, look how smart I am, but <laughs> the, <laughs> really my point being <laughs> my method of station to station does not make me good. does not make me better than these people. It's what's actually happening. It's what it's my results. It's what the dog looks like. It's the welfare that I'm considering that makes that a better route. So the quality of my training isn't determined by station to station. I'm sure somebody listening to this has another really smart idea that they've used for that exact problem that their end goal looks a lot like mine right? or their end result looks a lot like mine. And so it just comes back to did you consider welfare? Did you, and did you cause harm to other natural behaviors? Like did, did you first do no harm or not? Right. Is something that we need to think about. I think that's a great place to hit pause. Lisa and I have a lot more thoughts for you coming up in part three. This has been part two of the false dichotomy. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe wherever you heard this podcast. And don't forget to join Patreon at patreon.com slash cogdogradio. And if you're interested in more content like the stuff you heard here, I hope you'll check out my online courses, my membership, and all of my offerings at my website, sarahstremming.com. See you there.